0: some reaction jamie in green bay quote radio row is now looking less like a dog track today and more like a sports memorabilia convention hopefully oj does not show up to get his stuff back yeah hopefully not you know why i don't want to die hey then you put eight billion of them together on a planet that's rotating around a big gas giant It is just incredible that we are where we are, and let's focus on making the world a better place to live for humans, animals, and the environment in general.
1: So you're saying the earth is not the center of the universe?
0: I couldn't tell you, mate. When I jumped up high in the plane, it looks pretty flat to me.
1: Oh, so you're a flat earther now.
0: You know, John and I did the analysis of how to make the greatest difference in the shortest period of time. The answer actually doesn't pertain to climate change. One of the biggest things you can do Per dollar input versus dollar benefit output is what an incredible source of energy. Your entire life energy demand could be given to you by a single Coca-Cola can's worth of nuclear material. So I'll explain a little bit more about why I think vertical farming is going to change the world. My name is Sam Bertram. I am 28 years old. I am the CEO and co-founder of 1.1. 1.1 is a vertical farming technology company. Essentially, we build technology to grow the highest quality plants inside of warehouses. We started in 2017. Since then, we have raised over $60 million. We have over 80 employees. We have operations in San Jose and in Phoenix, Arizona. And we are on the path to proliferating this technology worldwide happy to go into any more detail you'd like mate
1: so 1.1 what does that stand for
0: good question 1.1 it was really the it was the catalyst it's actually a data point john and i john my brother the co-founder the cto of 1.1 we had been tossing around ideas about how to make the greatest difference in the shortest period of time and we came across the statistic that 1.1 billion people began this millennium malnourished That is a tragedy, and it was sort of the galvanizing moment for John and I to get into the business of plant production.
1: And so can you tell us a little bit more about your production? Just make it as simple as you can for anyone who's listening, because maybe they might just think of like a farmer, but versus what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. So I can spend five minutes kind of going through the start of the presentation, if you would like, just off the top of my head, if that sounds good, Austin. Yeah, let's do it. So I came to the United States in 2011. John, my brother, the co-founder came in 2010. He and I both came to the United States to play tennis. We went through our engineering undergraduate degrees and then engineering graduate degrees, mine in robotics, his in power engineering, and tossed around the ideas of how to make the greatest difference in the shortest period of time. And so we went to the WHO's website, World Health Organization, to understand what are the leading causes of death and suffering? And when you dive deeper, you know, beyond the sort of cause of mortality to look at what's called the risk factor determinants, you'll see that the number one risk factor determinant for mortality is poor access to nutrition. And the number two cause of mortality worldwide today is poor access to medicines. And so the reason I mention both of those is because plants are a solution to both. In the first place, plants are the basis of human nutrition. They're the basis of animal agriculture. They really underpin a significant portion of the global economy. And in the second place, plants are an incredible bioreactor. So you can utilize the plant's natural talents at producing molecules and produce pharmaceutical-grade molecules. And the best example of that is the COVID-19 vaccine. So understanding that plants are so powerful and so dramatically underutilized around the world, we have a look at how we currently grow plants. The vast, vast majority of plants are grown outdoors. Associated with that are a number of difficulties, labor difficulties, water shortages, soil degradation, erosion, land erosion, supply chain, many, many, many issues. And so, we, John and myself, figured out that the outdoor farm is not going to be the place where the future surplus of plant production is going to be grown predominantly. So, we looked at greenhouses. We actually, essentially, we looked at other ways to grow plants and we came across the concept of vertical farming. Now, what on earth is that? Vertical farming is where plants are grown inside, typically in warehouses. And the verticality comes from the idea that you can use that third dimension as opposed to just growing on a two-dimensional plane like a traditional farm or a greenhouse. You can use that third dimension. You can use multiple planes or you can flip the plane 90 degrees on its side and then have to stack them like dominoes more or less. So once we figured that you know, vertical farming could be done, we learned about all of the value propositions. Vertical farming can be done year round. Because we control the plant's light illumination, because we control the plant's temperature and humidity, because we control the plant's irrigation, we can make the plant believe that it is constantly in the perfect growing time of year, and so we have zero seasonality. And along with that, because we can control the plant's environment, since we control that environment, we can make the plant manifest in a variety of different ways. We can exclude pest and disease from entering the farm in the first place. We use zero pesticides, therefore, and these plants will never come into contact with heavy metals, which is not something that organic produce can claim. So, with all of these value propositions, we thought, you know, bloody hell, why is this technology not absolutely everywhere? The problem is cost. When you're comparing the cost of production of an outdoor farm to an indoor farm, even though it is vastly superior from a sustainability perspective, The cost of production, as you can imagine, since you have to build the facility and use electricity for lights as opposed to the sun, the cost is currently higher. Now, we, 1.1, are battling to change that. That was the whole thesis behind the business in the first place. In the first phase of our business, it is all about dropping the price of production of particularly leafy greens, the other crops as well, to the point where it's cost competitive. And as soon as it is cost competitive, in some cases, we already can cost competitive, it'll be a no-brainer for the consumer. The consumer will have access to a product with three times the shelf life. As I said before, zero pesticides, zero heavy metals, more nutritious, greater variety. This is going to be a significant shift in the consumption patterns of consumers when it comes to leafy greens, herbs, and some berries. So that was originally how things came to be, but the plans for the business extend significantly beyond leafy greens in the Western world.
1: Well, yeah, we can talk about the future, I guess, maybe a little bit later on, but First off, could you just tell us the simplest green that you would grow and that you said it's indoor versus horizontal farming versus the traditional farming, right, that we would see outdoor?
0: That's correct. So outdoors is horizontal and outdoors, obviously, and we are indoors and vertical. Right.
1: And what type of plants, what's the first one or easiest one that you've had success with? Okay. Spinach. Spinach. And then how high do these trellises almost, you would imagine, I guess, go?
0: Do you want me to explain for a second what it actually looks like?
1: Yeah, just make sure, yeah, we can keep it super simple, I guess, for anyone, because obviously they're just listening and I'm trying to look at the website, but still, yeah, that's the reason I said Trellis. I mean, maybe, yeah, what would you say?
0: Sure. So if you have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, you may remember the monolith. The monolith looks like this 30-foot tall pillar that is sitting there in space, or you can imagine a very tall domino. Out of either side of the domino, there are plants growing. There are leaves growing out of either side of the, the domino or the monolith inside the domino is an empty space where the roots are growing the roots are literally growing in thin air and every so often obviously a specific time interval we spray a nutrient infused mist at the roots so on either side of the domino there are led lights that are providing the light that the plants need to grow and then inside the domino we're providing a mist with nutrients infused. To allow the plant to absorb its water and its nutrients so that's kind of the cross-section of what 1.1's technology looks like if you can imagine it
1: and yeah i think i eventually saw a video i guess once you go to the apollo section so if anyone looks at that i think that's the easiest versus maybe even on the homepage of kind of seeing what you're talking about so are these basically just going to be more in an urban play versus like the midwest for example in the us
0: well, the coasts are a great place to start, but obviously there are consumers all throughout the United States that want access to this product. So, as I said, you know, there are some products that we can grow and get out into the market at a lower price than the traditional farm can. And so, those products will be available to everyone soon. The other products that are more difficult for us to grow, cost comparatively or at cost parity. We'll take some time to get out into the market, but we have a very clear cost curve, cost of production that over time we will get it low enough to you know, compete with the outdoor farm with these products. So
1: do you actually already have one of these made yet or no?
0: Yes. So in San Jose, we have a facility that is demonstrating our technique of growth. Our technique of growth is completely different than anyone else's, as I just explained with that domino or, or monolith explanation. So in San Jose... We have a farm that is demonstrating not only our capability to grow using what's called vertical plane aeroponics. We have also demonstrated the ability to employ a fleet of robots that automate the process. So we have a facility in San Jose, and we're much of the way through the construction of a much larger facility in Arizona.
1: How big is their two facilities?
0: San Jose is a 6,000 square foot warehouse within which a farm is built. And in Arizona, we have an 80,000 square foot warehouse within which we are building a farm. But the 80,000 square foot build will be built in phases.
1: So that one's not built yet, right?
0: The 80,000 square foot facility is under construction. The, the facility within the 80,000 square foot warehouse is under construction.
1: Right. But the San Jose one's totally done. Like, if I walk in, what percentage of it, like how many farms or vertical farms, like give us an like example of what percentage full?
0: That farm in San Jose has been operating for 18 months. It has two cultivation chambers. The top of the farm is about 24 to 25 feet tall. Within it, we have a couple dozen of those very tall dominoes that I was talking about before. We call them towers. We have about 18 of those towers sitting inside of that cultivation chamber. And then we have two robots that are running around the top of the facility performing a variety of functions. So if you were to walk into the San Jose facility, you would see big, tall cascading towers of plants growing up as far as you can see through the window. And then above that are a couple of robots moving the plants, inspecting the plants, moving the lights and so forth.
1: Does it make sense that the same company who controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech juggernauts. And that's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video you watch, or message you send gets tracked in data mines. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection that's why it's rated number one VPN service by CNET and TechRadar. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. Download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button and you're protected. So stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that minds your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me safe online. Visit expressvpn.com slash millionaire. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot slash millionaire. To get three extra months free, go to expressvpn.com slash millionaire right now to learn more. Traditional financial institutions neglect the needs of small business owners. I'm talking about you, freelancers, gigsters, Uber drivers, side hustlers, 1099 employees, any side income. Everyone qualifies under sole Prop. So are you struggling to find a business checking account that fits your needs as a small business owner looking for a checking account that does more than hold your money? Nearside is helping small businesses save money. The Nearside Cashback Program means you automatically get up to 2.2% cash back on all purchases. MasterCard enhanced debit benefits and discounts on business software like Square and QuickBooks. And the Nearside Perks Program gives you free credits and discounts on products you love, like $300 in Yelp ad credits and $200 in Indeed credit. They have two layers of cashback. Universal Cashback, where you get 2.2% on any business purchases made on the card. Plus, they have the easy savings cashback. MasterCard has partnered with tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S., bring you up to 10% off select purchases. No monthly fees and no overdraft fees. Nearside Business Checking helps you grow your business by saving you money and providing valuable rewards and discounts. With Nearside Rewards, you can earn cash back automatically on all the business purchases you already make. And they offer seamless online banking experience for on-the-go entrepreneurs. And you can check it out right now. Go check out the Nearside app in both the Google Play Store and Apple Store. To learn more about Nearside and how they can help your business, go to nearside.com forward slash inspiration and sign up for a Nearside business checking account or click the link in the description below to sign up for your Nearside business checking account okay so yeah that's one other interesting element other than i guess making it as perfect as you can the growing but then you hadn't even mentioned yet that it's robots not humans who are inspecting and moving or what would the robots do
0: yeah exactly so as i said one of the biggest problems with vertical farming is that it's too expensive it's incredible product but people aren't willing to pay a massive massive premium for the incredible product in order to get the price down we have to automate away many many of the functions so that would be seeding the plant in its growth medium, moving the plant to its growth location, automating all of the inputs, what light levels, irrigation levels, temperatures and humidities, inspecting the plant visually should be performed autonomously, harvesting the plant, packaging the plant. There are many more functions inside of the vertical farm that must be automated. And that's why it is so hard. You're trying to combine machinery, hardware with biology, And have them interact sort of symbiotically in such a way that the plant can thrive so yes there are two main buckets of innovation at 1.1 the first one is cultivation technology the way we grow our plants through vertical plane aeroponics and then automation technology the way that we automate many of the functions inside of the facility
1: okay it's called aeroponics right you keep saying that's right so I guess this has been a thing that maybe some people have been doing at home now recently, right? Or I've heard of at least, is it hydroponics or aeroponics? Or I don't know what the difference is. Or Yeah.
0: Well, I can explain the basics there. So the vast majority of plants, of course, grow outdoors in soil. The plant root penetrates through the soil and searches for pockets of water and gas and nutrients that it likes. In hydroponics, The roots don't sit in soil. You can imagine a pool of water upon which a raft is floating and the roots are penetrating down into that water. And that water is oxygenated as much as it can be because the roots need oxygen and also infused with nutrients at the right electrical conductivity and pH. So it's treated water that the roots are growing into in hydroponics, but aeroponics is where the roots drink from a mist. So the roots are, as I said before, sitting in thin air. And it is a mist, it is a set of hundreds of thousands, millions of droplets that arrive on these roots that provide the roots with the gases and the nutrients and liquids that are required to grow.
1: And what is it called when you grow plants just in regular soil, like we're all typically used to?
0: You could just say soil-based growth. It's not really called anything because it's just the way it is done, right? So outdoor farming or traditional farming is typically how you would describe it, soil-based farming.
1: Yeah, because the stem Uh, hydroponics. Is that water-based? Because that's what I was trying to figure out. Thank you for explaining the hydroponics again. So if anyone's listening, if it's just in water, which I think I've seen people do like PVC pipes in their backyard, right? Yes, And so that makes more sense versus yours is aeroponics. So it sounds like you're probably using less water and it's a mist, you're saying, and you can still see the root versus again, the regular horizontal farming that we're all used to. That's right. Yes. So just going back to your facility in San Jose, if we can just talk about that a little bit more, you said spinach, is that the main thing that you started off with or do you have multiple things in there?
0: We've grown over a hundred cultivars. We've harvested over 600,000 plants. We grow a variety of leafy greens. Spinach is one of them though, you know, kale, arugula, microgreens. Kale is
1: disgusting. I've tr- I tried. It.
0: <laughs> Am
1: I, my wife, try- I'm like, I'll try. I don't know how people like that. I can almost <laughs> eat anything.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know why? So we have an investor called Fred Luddy. He founded ServiceNow when he was, I think, something like 55 years old. And now it's $140 billion market cap. He's an investor of ours. sits on our board. We sent him some product to taste a couple of years ago. And he called me and he said, Sam, for every second of my 62-year life, I have hated kale. (laughs) But this is the first time that I've ever actually enjoyed it. This is something very important to understand about the way that we grow plants. The product that you're getting in the shelf has been designed to be as resilient as possible, to last through all of these environmental challenges, rainy days, cold days, hot days, a supply chain that's 2,000 miles long. The product that we're growing inside of our facility has been optimized for quality. So when you eat it, it is truly a significantly different experience. Because you can imagine, you know, most people don't care about leafy greens. It's like a side salad at best. But when my three-year-old and investors nine and 14-year-olds pick up the fact that, oh my goodness, what is this? It actually tastes good. It is a step function change in the quality of the product.
1: I mean, that makes sense. So I mean- if you did have something bad come through, like something come inside, it probably wouldn't be nearly as resilient, you're saying. But obviously, you try to optimize and make sure everything is germ-free, I guess, or whatever, you know, sterile, if you will. But because it's not outdoor, like you're saying, those have to be way more hardened, those type of plants, because they could have to get used to insects and exactly, exactly. lack of water, Exactly, cetera. That makes more sense.
0: Yes. So not only do we protect the plant from many of these threats, we also give the plant exactly what it wants every single day. So as opposed to sort of eight hours of peak sunlight, we can provide 18 hours of peak sunlight rather than in Monterey, the temperature dropping down to 50s at night. We can keep the temperature of these products much higher as if they were in a Mediterranean climate. So we can give the plants exactly what they need, which allows them to thrive.
1: And so what's been like the cost of production for whatever the simplest leafy green is, like spinach? Like, yeah, just tell me the cost of that versus a traditional supermarket.
0: Sure. So let's talk about the cost of production first. When you go to Salinas, the outdoor farm or Yuma, Arizona or Santa Maria, wherever, you, wherever these products are grown in those, mainly in those few areas, the cost of production is unbelievably low. They grow on hundreds of acres. They have a large tractor that harvests them. They have automated packaging and washing facilities and so forth. So. All in all, the cost to produce that plant, package the plant, get it through the distribution center, and so forth, on a per pound basis, you're looking anywhere from a $1 dollar to a dollar fifty to produce the product. And then to get it onto the store shelf through the distributor, it might cost around three dollars. And then when you get to the consumer level, it's about a five dollar per pound price, if a four to five dollar per pound price. Now, we did our own analyses on how much it cost the vertical farming industry to produce that product. And our estimate came out at about $9.54. So you can see already that that doesn't really work. Now, the vast majority of those costs come from A, labor, B, electricity, and C, the cost to build the facility or the amortization of that cost. So when you reinvent the way you grow vertical plane aeroponics, When you automate away many of the functions that were traditionally labor-intensive, our automation technology, you can drop the price of production down to $4, $3, $2, and eventually cost parity with the outdoor farm. So
1: when is that eventually going to hit?
0: Depends on the product. So there are some products that the vertical farm can already beat the outdoor farm on. Say for example, the herbs and the microgreens of the world, they're more difficult to grow. They're grown in lower volumes. They're slightly more niche products. As Peter Thiel says, find a niche and dominate it. That's where vertical farms should start, have started, do often start. Right now, we are cost competitive with herbs and microgreens. Over the next two years, we become cost competitive with many leafy green products, though not that mass market $4 to $5 per pound product, right? That comes in about three years. And so in about three years time, you're going to see on the market a vastly superior product at essentially the same price as you're currently paying in the store. That's when we think the horizon is for leafy green cost parity. And then for berry cost parity, it's somewhere between three and five years because it's a slightly more complicated plant to grow. And then there are a variety of other crops, obviously, that will be concatenated onto the end of that timeline.
1: So which ones specifically are you already beating again on price?
0: Herbs and microgreens. So this would be, you know, the basils, the cilantro, the corianders, the rosemaries, these kinds of things, niche, high price, premium products, and then microgreens, which are essentially a kale plant that you grow for seven days as opposed to 17 days.
1: So why don't you just dominate that for now if you're already making money on that versus planning on these things in the future that might take
0: three or five years to break even? Because the market opportunity is so large and because there is thick competition in the vertical farming space, that is exactly where we will start. But we must also parallelize the development of these crops for the time when that occurs. Now, remember, we are on a path to automate all of the functions inside of this vertical farm. And so this is just a trajectory or a projection of when the production of these plants, the price production of these plants is so low that we can be not only cost competitive, but vastly superior in terms of quality.
1: Who looks at like the financials for this? Because obviously you said you got a lot of money in funding. So I guess being profitable day one is not obviously a big issue, right? But I'm still thinking like, there must be a shit ton of financial analysis that goes in on debating how long till we do the berries or whatever versus like making some profit now. So like, how do you do that?
0: We are heavily, myself, the CTO, the COO, heavily heavily involved in the financial projections of our business of course but also the sort of opex or the performance financial performance of each farm now there are lots of really important metrics that drive the performance of each farm the yield of the crop if you have a low yielding crop your revenue per square foot per month is low if you have a high yielding crop the revenue per square foot per month is high of course so the yield of the product is important the cost of electricity is important The cost of construction is important. There are very many factors that you can tweak up or down to increase or decrease the price of production of these facilities. So that is what we optimize for. It's part of the reason that we're in Arizona as opposed to California. And
1: does it matter like, if you're growing herbs and whatnot in one warehouse and- Let's say you're doing spinach or cabbage, like right next to it. Does that really help at all? Or does it not matter at all since it's inside and we're doing something different than the regular horizontal farming that we're used to?
0: It does matter. So you've got a hardy product like kale that prefers a slightly cooler temperature and can endure much more variability in the environment. And then there's a crop like basil, also a, quite a hardy crop, but it enjoys a much warmer temperature. And then you've got crops like strawberries that require a warm temperature during the day and quite a cold temperature at night. And that's just temperature. That's not light or pH or nutritional concentrations inside the plant. There are a variety of different environmental set points that grow the optimal plant. Now, you can grow basil and kale together with that temperature difference and the slight irrigation differences. But the ideal case is for an 80,000 square foot facility to have dozens of those individual chambers within which there are specific set points that are designed to grow a single crop optimally.
1: And these chambers, how big
0: are these chambers? A thousand square foot in their footprint.
1: Okay. So even though we might see a wall or whatever, you still have sectioned off like glass or something like that?
0: Exactly. So you would have, it's like the fridges at Costco. You have those, that insulated paneling around the outside. And then you have nine, 12, 16, very tall dominoes or columns sitting inside of that cultivation chamber.
1: Okay, so yeah, it really doesn't matter if they're all in the same place, because, again, if I'm just thinking, I don't know a lot about farming, but if it's outside and we're talking about like bees or insects, like they kind of help. You're having different types of plants land on each other, whatever. But this, it doesn't matter. You're just trying to you have all these different sections. And I guess you're optimizing for a whole versus just going for straight profit right now if you just did all herbs and spices right now. So you're really kind of diversifying your financials by doing all these different types of plants and whatnot in these different sections of the vertical farm.
0: Precisely. So one, in the six chambers that we have in the next facility, one would be attributed to spinach, one would be attributed to kale, one would be attributed to microgreens, one would be attributed to the germination environment for all of these plants. So we do have set points for each chamber and optimize for each crop inside of that chamber.
1: (sighs) Well, I feel like I kind of understand it. Is is there something that I should have asked that I haven't yet about this vertical farming before we figure out a little bit more of how you got started?
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'll explain a little bit more about why I think vertical farming is going to change the world. Do you want to talk about that later or do you want to talk a little bit more about the technology?
1: Well, let's just go ahead and do both, whatever you feel more comfortable. Because I mean, it makes sense. Like, that's the reason I was even saying when we're focusing on coast and whatnot, like I think, let's just say even a thousand years from now, we all understand, as long as we keep having kids, it seems like none of us are having <laughs> kids anymore, right? Yeah. Like everyone can visualize, we'll eventually need this no matter what. But right now, like that's why my focus was like, okay, it must be closer to more urban places because in the Midwest, it probably makes zero sense because the value of land so low. So yeah, let's talk about the future.
0: I can expand on that slightly if you want. I mean, I think a lot of people think that agriculture is kind of in this steady state you know it's commodity industry it's going to always be there it's always going to be pushing out similar amounts of yield and all this kind of stuff that is not the case the outdoor farm is in trouble that is not to say that the outdoor farm is going away it is also not to say that i want the outdoor farm to go away i don't i want the outdoor farm to stay but with 75 percent of the united states topsoil destroyed with us destroying it 10 times the rate that it naturally replenishes, with 70% of fresh water going to agriculture, with all of this runoff into the water table, into our waterways, there are so many different elements of the outdoor farm that cause for concern that a lot of people aren't paying attention to. I mean, already 40% of farm income is from the government. 40%. Oh yeah, subsidies
1: are, so my grandpa, he's a farmer. There are no farmers that are rich. And it's because it's all subsidized, too. There's all subsidies. Like, they're all Democrats for a reason. Like, my grandfather was into economics and, like, oh, I thought this was good, like, Keynesian economics. And, oh, yeah, we, us getting kickbacks from the government, but that's just because it kept him in business. But you're only in business because of subsidies. So it makes no sense to actually be in business if we had no subsidies.
0: It's a tangle that we've gotten ourselves into. Years and years ago, you know, we put forward an agricultural farm bill to make sure. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The desire was to make sure that there was a steady supply of these commodity products, the corn, the wheat, soybean, these kinds of things. And so the government propped up production. I mean, like you said, the farmer is not rich and the farmer is often taking much of the risk and their livelihood is at stake, right?
1: Yeah. And they're poor because that's the reason they used to have so many kids because they work for free. That's why. Because they needed free labor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad point. I mean, like if you look up the economics of growing soybean out in the land you're mentioning in in the Midwest, you know, say Ohio, they're making $500 to $1,000 an acre in revenue, you know, and oftentimes they're losing money per acre, but the subsidies get them over the line. And again, I want to make it very clear that the farmer is, is an honourable person. You know, they are doing something that is very, very difficult for quite little pay, for very little pats on the back, you know, certainly not coming after the farmer. But at the same time, the idea that 40% of farm income comes from the government feels like that is not the best state of play.
1: Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? Zipbox.com makes it easy for U.S. businesses to partner with factories in Mexico. And you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more with new products being added every single day. All of the factories on Zipbox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try Zipbox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? it was zipbox.com that's z i p f o x.com there's no membership fee and you can search without even creating an account so try zipbox.com today our next partner has a product i use literally every day i started taking athletic greens because i want a better gut health and an optimized immune system so what is this stuff with one delicious scoop of athletic greens you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. See, I consume my healthy scoop of Athletic Greens every single morning. So I get my day started off right. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews and is recommended by professional athletes. It's lifestyle-friendly whether you choose to eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Plus, it supports mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health make it easy, Athletic Green is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I envy like how they could work so hard for so little pay and take so much risk. Like you're saying, it's it's just. I mean, they work just as hard as any small business, and probably much harder to be honest, because they can't control the sunlight and whatnot, like you're talking about. You kind of already sold me. That's one thing I never even thought about. I mean, I've heard about the soil getting worse over time because of pesticides and whatnot, but you don't need soil doing your thing. So I never even thought about that. Again, I think in the future, no matter what, we're all thinking about it. it's obviously sounds like it might need to be sooner than later. But even when we go to Mars, like this is the shit they're going to need. Like there's no doubt at all, right? Right, They have no choice. Like even if we wanted to subsidize horizontal farming there, they can't afford to do that.
0: Yeah. And something that I certainly learned over the sort of the arc of this time at 1.1 is that it all comes down to economics, mate, especially in this kind of market. You know, we can come forward and... Tell people about our system, zero pesticides, 99% less water, 99% less land, way more sustainable. All of that sounds great and is great. But when it comes to the consumer, they vote with their dollars. And we hear from everyone in the produce industry that if you throw a 20 or 30% premium on top of the product like organic does, people might be willing to put their dollars down. But if you, you know, double the price of the product, people aren't going to be willing to pay for those sustainability points at double the price. So it's just an interesting, it's interesting to see people talk a lot about wanting to save the world and make responsible decisions and this kind of stuff. But in the end, the consumer votes with their dollar. And that's where, you know, much of the analysis should come from. But back to our previous conversation, farmers are very honorable people and we do not want them to go away. In fact, we want to help them as much as we can. But at the same time, as I said before, I don't think people realize the kind of position we are in. As humanity 50,000 edible species of plants three of them are 60% of the world's calories like plants are dramatically underutilized and the way that traditional farming has been going particularly since world war ii
1: yeah real quick yeah come back but we got to know the three plants first because i'm going to forget to ask
0: (laughs) (laughs) corn wheat and soybean those are the majority of the calories for humanity we can go as deep as you want into this. I think it's a fascinating topic. No,
1: I, I love yeah. it. Yeah, you're talking about World War II, so jump back <laughs> in. There.
0: Yeah, so in World War II, it was very important that the United States shore up their supply and make sure that they increase their supply and make sure that the company, excuse me, the country could operate as efficiently as possible. So in World War II, you saw this massive consolidation of farmland. Before World War II, it was much less consolidated, more decentralized, far more players in the market. Each farmer held a much smaller amount of acreage. But after World War II, you just saw the beginning of this massive, massive consolidation where large organizations purchase massive amounts of land and farmers farm them. And so that kind of agriculture lends itself much more towards these commodity products like the corn, the wheat, and the soybeans, these kinds of things. And now what do you see? You see the... Vast majority of products in the market have derived from one of these three crops or multiple of these three crops. sugarcane is another example. And then they take the soybean, they squeeze the oil out, turn it into oil, and then take the rest of it and send that product off to the cows to eat. The cows aren't used to eating these kinds of products, so it alters the physiology of the cow. The system of agriculture is so beautiful in many ways and incredible that it feeds everyone in the United States essentially every day. But that does not mean it's optimal. You know, Half of the United States almost is overweight, 30-something percent of the United States is obese. Every year, diet-related disease costs the United States $1.7 trillion. That's larger than the military budget. We are not in a good place. It's just that for whatever reason, this isn't on the forefront of humanity's conversation.
1: Why is that not?
0: I don't think it's a sexy topic. Agriculture is not, you know, we've only started seeing a large amount of investment coming from capital markets only recently in agtech, significant nonetheless, but I don't think it's a particularly sexy topic. I think the layer between reality and the audience is media. And oftentimes media do not have the incentives to report on important topics. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Agriculture doesn't really bleed, but it only will become an issue, I believe, when people start to see differences in supply and differences in price. And that I think that is around the corner. I mean, we've already started seeing some of that in the commodity market, but how much of that is attributable to inflation, I don't know. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't sit on the forefront of humanity's conversation. And I believe, you know, when John and I did the analysis of how to make the greatest difference in the shortest period of time, the answer actually doesn't pertain to climate change. It is fascinating to see when you dive into the data Climate change is a lot about projections. A lot of it, of course, some of it is happening now. I'm not a climate change denier, my goodness. But at the same time, a lot of it is projection. What's the differences in temperature by 2100? Let's model that by taking squares of the Earth's surface and then taking historical data and a couple more inputs and see what kind of happens over time. That will affect millions of lives, certainly in the years ahead. But today, mate, today, 821 million people do not have access to food. 1.6 million people are going to die of tuberculosis. Today, people are dying and suffering. And so John and I wanted to put our time and our resources towards a problem that is killing people today and the thing that is killing people most today. So it's interesting to not see it on the forefront of humanity's conversation, but I think that is more an artifact of the media acting according to their incentives as opposed to some hierarchy of importance.
1: Yeah. when you're talking about all these people that might be malnourished or, you know, need food, like, did you go on a mission trip or something and see that? Because it's different from like hearing a stat. You can tell me stats and stuff, but if I don't have anything to like relate it to, or even if I hear it, it's kind of hard for me to imagine, I guess, as much versus like anytime there's commercials that would come on about like malnourished kids in Africa, like those would emotionally trigger you. It makes a huge difference versus kind of just reading a stat. So. When you're talking about these stats and whatnot, was there some aha moment other than just looking into solving the world's problems?
0: I mean, certainly there was a personalization of those statistics. You know, the 1.1 billion we mentioned, John and I sat on it, you know, thinking, okay, let's imagine the horror of being malnourished, then multiply that for one person and then multiply that by triple the population of the United States. It's just so unimaginable that people don't spend the time trying to comprehend it. We spent the time trying to comprehend it. This is my brother John's example. You're with your friends in the pool and you're playing a game where you're holding your breath. After about 40 seconds, you start to respond physiologically, hopefully not convulsing, but you're accumulating too much CO2 and there's not enough O2. So you come up for air and start breathing and wait for your mates to pop up. Being malnourished is not knowing where the hell the air is. You're having a physiological response to a deprivation of a core requirement or input for humans And you have a physiological response that is extremely negative. That is sincere suffering. Malnourishment is sincere suffering. And so, yes, back to your original question, we took that data and personalized it and made it real for ourselves. It's like that picture, I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winning picture, I can't remember, of the child in Africa crouched over with the vulture in the background, sort of obviously ominously waiting to eat the poor child. But ironically enough, that photographer committed suicide a couple of years later. But you're right. Part of the reason that I don't think it's on the front of everyone's minds is because it's just not relatable. In the United States, you don't really know what it's like, A, to not have access to food and B, to not know whether or not this food is going to make you very, very unwell. You're right. It is not a relatable statistic. But at the same time, it is an important enough statistic to make it relatable. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Is anyone in the U.S. even malnourished? Because I guess you even saying stuff with the pool kind of helps me understand that because I think a lot of us could understand that. But, you know, I don't think any of us listening right now have ever been malnourished, really. So it's kind of harder to see. And then once you start seeing pictures, like, where are these malnourished people? So in case you wanted to Google more, trying to figure that out, maybe it just emotionally kind of hit people to make more sense of why this is important.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, here's another concept. Peter Singer, who's a, I think he's at Princeton, he's a philosopher. He said. If you're walking down the path next to a river and you see a three-year-old or a five-year-old next to that riverbank malnourished and about to be eaten by some animal, you're going to go save that child. There's no question that you're going to stop everything that you're doing, muddy your boots, dirty your clothes, pick up that child and save it. But for whatever reason, human beings, when they're 50, 500, 5,000 miles away from that child, it is completely outside of their zone of consciousness. And therefore, to that individual, it doesn't matter. Every day, there is immense suffering and death, and for whatever reason, and it is partially a choice, other human beings 5,000 miles away do not spend much time thinking about it. I think we have all, all have our own personal problems that are relatively important to us that we solve. So I do agree with you. Now, in terms of malnourishment in the United States, there is a concept of food deserts where individuals... Typically, in low-income communities, do not live in close proximity to highly nutritious food. Most of it is sort of gas stations and candy stores and these kinds of things, you know, dollar marts. But certainly, malnourishment, though it exists in the homeless community, low-income communities in the United States, the malnourishment we're talking about, it's sort of it pales in comparison to the quality and quantity of malnourishment around the world in developing nations. Now, the flip side of that coin is a fascinating flip side. 821 million people are malnourished because they don't get enough good food. And 2.2 billion people worldwide are malnourished in a different sense because they're eating too much of the wrong food, if that makes sense. So we were talking about those obesity statistics earlier, double the number of people on planet Earth overweight or malnourished of that kind than are malnourished from eating too little, which is a quite an ironic fact to ponder. No, that
1: does make sense. Like, I mean, I obviously knew like they weren't nutritionally healthy, like right low income places and stuff like that versus like the malnourished where I think we're thinking like Africa or maybe India or whatever, and kids just having like zero food and having stunted you know, growth. Yes. Like, right. Exactly. Versus the ones that are way too overweight because they're eating shitty food. Yes. Yes. But did you, again, we can talk about stats and maybe you're just way more analytical that you can just kind of look at the stat and you're like, yeah, I'm going to solve the world and see that. But did you like physically want to go see any of this to motivate you even more? Or like, was there anything else behind it when you decided to go down this road?
0: I don't think we needed to, you know, and that's not to say it's not important to go, but we didn't really need to. We really thought about this and the impact, the magnitude of the suffering. It's just and yes, you're right. I think it was an analytical path that we went down. But once we discovered what, what we believe to be the greatest problem facing humanity today, it wasn't very hard for us to qualify that, feel that, internalize that, comprehend that. That's why I use the word galvanizing because it wasn't just an entry of a data point into an Excel spreadsheet. It was a galvanizing moment. It was emotionally impactful and it pushed us towards action.
1: Well, how long did you think about it when you, because you were with your brother trying to figure out what you're going to go down, what path, right? And then when you figured out this vertical farming and you're going to do that, how long was the time to figure that out?
0: It was probably early 2016, excuse me, early, it was middle 2016 when we started sort of talking about what to do about the problem. We discovered the problem in middle 2016. And then early 2017, we started to put pitch decks together to talk to VCs on Sand Hill Road out of Stanford and so forth. And then in the middle of 2017, July 11th, we incorporated and took our first $10,000 check from the uh, Farmers Investment Club out of Stanford. So that was the path, but it was a, certainly a peculiar path.
1: Okay. So it was like six months of kind of, I'm just guessing you maybe total of trying to understand these stats and making sure that this makes sense. and
0: Making sure that this makes sense is key. Exactly. That to us, because what we don't want to do is look at a huge problem, find a solution that we think is arbitrarily cool or effective, not be able to prove that it is effective or will be effective, and then waste our time, waste our lives. That's not what we want to do. So it was key to us, like you were talking about before, to understand those economics inside out, understand those timelines. Obviously, our understanding today is much better than it was in 2017, but nonetheless, it's fundamentally important to us to understand that. This technology will affect those people. I'm not saying it's going to affect them in the next two, three, five years, but it will affect those people as we walk down each of the stepping stones to that point. Versus you like building a solar car
1: or something like that <laughs> when they're saying, like, right? I, no, you're I think right. my mom actually even told me when they talked about that, she said they were talking about that when she was growing up, that they're going to have solar cars, you know, and that yes. still hasn't happened and it just kind of makes no sense. I don't think the technology ever gonna get there, who knows? And by the time you figure it out, then we're doing electric vehicles, which in case anyone just doesn't even understand that concept, I mean I mean it's just crazy to think that cars run just on one type of fuel, right? We're talking about oil versus electric cars that uses all different types of energy. So even in the future, right, if as technology gets better, we're still using that. So it's gonna help no matter what versus just making a more efficient one that runs on gasoline, if you will, or, or
0: oil. Yeah, I mean again it comes down to economics, right? I mean, solar. Solar took massive investments from the government to push forward commercialization and to push R&D down the path, but it comes down to cost. Only now are we starting to see solar on a per kilowatt hour basis be cheaper than that of coal or other forms of fossil fuels when starting from scratch. So I've been thinking about this a lot, talking about it a lot with my brother. Capitalism, I think, is phenomenal. I think it's proven itself as the system that can increase prosperity for the most people in the shortest period of time. Though, of course, there are market failures. There are areas where the market could be more efficient or get products that are better for the earth into the consumer base sooner. And I'll be more specific. Solar cars have sounded great for a long time. Solar, unfortunately, has a maximum efficiency, has a theoretical maximum efficiency. Therefore, the square feet or square meters of light at midday hitting that solar car aren't enough to power it actively down the freeway. So you need to figure out a way to generate far, far high energy density. And that's why oil, that's why petroleum is so good because the energy density is incredible. It's incredible energy density and there's trillions of gallons of it around the world. We still haven't reached peak oil. We've been projecting peak oil for something like 40 or 50 years now, right? But what oil has done for humanity is increased prosperity out of sight. So though I think, yes, it is better for the planet not to take this carbon that has been sequestered down there in hundreds of 1000000s year old dinosaur fossils and then release it back out into the atmosphere, I don't think that that is optimal. But at the same time, what's the other side of the coin? If you're going to get rid of oil, at what cost? So, you know, these a lot of these sustainability efforts actually harm the people most who they're trying to help you know what happens when the cost of energy goes up it hurts the poorest most what happens when the cost of fuel goes up it hurts the poorest most so i think there has to be a lot more discussion about the impacts of many of these things as opposed to sort of just the positive impacts
1: Maybe if you'd be down, maybe I'll do a part two or talk about this later about your your storyline, because I want to keep going down this route. Because like me specifically saying, like, well, using cars versus electric car you have, it's kind of like plants that you are you have right you have multiple types of plants that you're doing and that's why electric cars are so much better because you could use a solar power plant or you could use an oil-based power plant i'm not saying get rid of oil or anything like that but when people are saying solar cars you're still relying on one type of energy right like if we're doing that versus a, again a car that's running on gasoline is one type of energy versus again we could use like a nuclear power plant and actually power those cars and whatnot
0: don't get me started on
1: nuclear <laughs> You took the time to think about this, right? Going mm-hmm. forward. And I don't think some people do. They just kind of jump to it like this is the best thing to do. And like, now let's think about this a little bit harder. What is it going to look like in the future? But what do you want to say about nuclear?
0: Well, nuclear power was very, very high up on our list of greatest difference in shortest period of time. Nuclear fusion, which is where you're essentially replicating the sun, is still a while away. There's lots of talk about, you know, generating more energy than you put in. But still, that's only talking about the heat inside the reactor. That's not talking about net electricity and net electricity out. So, nuclear fusion is a while away. But nuclear fission, what an incredible source of energy. Your entire life, your entire life, energy demand Could be given to you by a single Coca Cola cans worth of nuclear material. Okay, so this is just an incredibly when we're talking about energy density, you start all the way down at you know sunlight, which is you know two thousand watts per square meter above the atmosphere. You know eight hundred per day, what hours per day? Anyway. The point being is, imagine that energy density that your entire life's energy needs are provided to you by a Coca Cola cans worth of, you know, nuclear material. This is just incredible. And the worst disaster in US history, Three Mile Island of a nuclear power plant, killed a grand total of zero human beings. And if you mention nuclear power to basically anyone in the public, it's very, very scary. Now, there are reasons to be concerned. Of course, you must be extremely safe. You've got to have a negative R factor inside of these facilities, meaning that if they fail, they decrease in temperature as opposed to increase in temperature. But to summarize, here again is another obviously superior path to energy independence and sustainability, but for whatever reason, the sustainability crowd ignores it and the government gets in the way and all of these kinds of things.
1: I don't know if we even really talked about your background. So what is your background?
0: Sure. I describe my path to this position here today as a three year old birthday party with a pinata and a blindfold. I just kept bloody swinging. Half the time, I didn't even know what the heck I was swinging at. Coming to the United States, that was a bet. Played tennis, had relative success in the Central Valley and and in California. Moved to a D1 school, was captain there for a couple of years. Undergraduate in mechanical engineering and then master's in robotics. You know, I certainly wasn't the smartest student in the class or the best student in the class, but for whatever reason, when my mind becomes Interested in topics, I like to go as deep as satisfies that desire. So, particularly when it comes to food, nourishment, biopharmaceuticals, nuclear, some transportation, those are my areas of interest. You know, I am, and also economics, governance, these are very interesting to me. You know, if you were to ask me about the manufacturing supply chain of the fashion industry, I would have absolutely no idea even where to start, right? So, that there are just particular areas of interest to me. And it just so happens that they are in these areas of energy and food and hopefully issues that matter.
1: Well, speaking of which, because you spent time thinking about this, what are other things that you looked at that didn't make sense?
0: Great place to go is Bjorn Lomborg. He is the head of the Copenhagen Consensus Institute, I believe it's called. The entire job of that organization is to rank order the problems in humanity then rank order the solutions to those problems and their relative cost input versus benefit output. Uh, so for example,
1: and real quick, what is it called again?
0: Uh, his name is Bjorn Lomborg.
1: How do you spell the last name? B-G-A-O-R-N. It's a first. B
0: J B-J-O-R-N, last name Lomborg, L-O-M-B-O-R-G, Copenhagen Consensus Center, if I remember correctly. And that's what he's doing. He's basically figuring out what are the biggest problems, what are the solutions to those problems, and what's dollar in versus benefit out. Fascinating, not to say that he is the arbiter of truth, of course, but anyway, he is the one, for example, you know, getting straws out of the ocean. Everyone agrees that it would be fantastic to get straws out of the ocean. We don't want the ocean or the ecosystem or the animals in the ocean to suffer. I mean, obviously that is true. But at the same time, we have finite human capital Finite financial capital, finite time, finite resources in general. So how do we attribute those finite resources to tackle the biggest problems in the shortest period of time? It's a relatively simple question, though the answer is very, very complicated, which is why Bjorn Lomborg exists. But like I was saying, one of the biggest things you can do per dollar input versus dollar benefit output is to buy mosquito nets for people in certain African countries is to provide buckets of rice to starving people in specific areas, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and these kinds of locations, right? I think we all get drawn in to specific issues that have been brought to our attention through the media. Then we all want to solve it. That's what's so beautiful about the United States is I think that at the base, everyone has the right intentions. No one wants homelessness. No one wants people to suffer. No one wants poor education or poor healthcare or poor transportation or poor infrastructure. The left thinks the right wants to destroy everything. The right thinks the left wants to destroy everything. No, we all want to make things better. So let's have a quantitative discussion about what the biggest problems are and then what the best solutions are and how we should tackle them and execute against those timelines, right? But it's just, that is not the way it seems we solve problems. So this is
1: the part where I'm getting paid to tell you about Real Vision. You may not listen to me, just like my wife, but you should take them up. and They're ridiculous. $1 trial deal. Since Real Vision was launched in 2014 as an on-demand finance and education platform, they've been on a mission to help people just like you access the financial information that was largely kept behind closed doors. That's stuff that actually affects your wallet, your investments, and your future. But if you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're never going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, Real Vision Crypto was launched, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 200,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation. Five times a week, they bring you the most brilliant minds in finance and crypto, including Gary Vee, Catlin Long, Bill Tao, Mike Novogatz, and so many more. And guess what? Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, go visit realvision.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that's realvision.com forward slash millionaire. If you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old-style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast-moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest, build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. But then the problem is, too, as you probably understand, is that there's so much fucking lying going on, especially like even when I guess you talked about the WHO in the beginning, right? The World Health Organization. (laughs) Didn't you have to go research further like who's funding it, right? (laughs) The problem is that there's just so much fucking lying going on that you can just say whatever.
0: I think that there are some actions by some people in the media that are deplorable and making huge negative impacts on the United States and the social fabric. I think the concept... I became a citizen this year. I think the United States is an incredible country. I think that the constitution is a uniquely powerful document. The government is the worst run business on planet earth. You can look at the way that it manages its budget, $30 trillion in debt. Who's in debt? I'm sorry. Future generations are in debt. Fantastic. Thank you for putting future generations in debt. Sorry, you're spending billions and billions more than you're getting in IRS income. That doesn't work at a household level and you want to do it at a governmental level. The constitution defines very clearly what a government should and should not do. And since then, the government has been growing incredibly. The government is, the US government is essentially the biggest business in the world. It has the highest revenue, it's handling the most money and it makes some of the most important decisions. And the difference is that a company becoming tyrannical can lose in the market. A government becoming tyrannical is incredibly hard to stop. I think the United States citizenry should band together, understand that these are common problems and we all want to solve these problems. We must figure out a way to solve these problems as opposed to being led down these paths that are very bad for social cohesion. When Israel and the UK come out with studies to say that natural immunity from COVID is more powerful than vaccine immunity from COVID, Again, I have no dog in this fight. I'm just trying to find where the information is coming from. And from what I see, the CDC or whatever governmental institution it is says, no, 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 we're not going to take that into account. It's vaccine or nothing, right? So it's just this kind of stuff where I'm not even close to anti-vax, not even close, but it is just confusing, to put it lightly, the way that many of these institutions talk about it. And then the media sort of peddles that information to the benefit of their bottom line and to the detriment of the US's uh, social fabric. I think more
1: and more people, it's just like they don't believe anything, which kind of actually is a good thing in the news. I mean, I told my parents just like 10 or 15 years ago, pre-internet, you're going to believe whatever the news said. But the advent of the internet, obviously like our generation, we're like, oh, we can actually find the real answer. But now they're starting to switch the Google search results or hide certain things. And you're like, <laughs> now I don't really believe anything again. So you should be skeptical and try to find it. But now it's like, how much time do I have to research this or not research this? And I guess one of the other things is like, oh well, during an NBA game, Sponsored by Moderna or sponsored by Pfizer on these commercials, yeah, that yeah. going into CNN or whatever. Like it doesn't matter what news station they're gonna ask for boosters forever because these guys are making money off that, obviously. And then, <laughs> then I start hearing that Bill Gates he donates so much money to all these different media organizations, and they do that so that he'll have airtime and that so they talk positive about him, right? So it's just like. Yeah you start learning you're like to start believing anything so it's like once you find an organization where they're just trying to actually make the world a better place it's like it's great to be able to hear what things actually are the most beneficial on a cost benefit ratio
0: yeah The advent of the internet was ideal in the way that information was available to anyone at all times, but that's also a problem. You know, you've seen a resurgence in a number of ideas that aren't necessarily backed up by evidence because people dive into pools of information that have not been vetted in the same way that, for example, Bjorn vets this information. So it's a double-edged sword, but I would come back to, again, one of the powers of the constitution or the concept of the constitution was the responsibilities of the individual. We spend a lot of time these days talking about the rights of the individual. No, 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 no. Let's talk about the responsibility of individuals. It is your responsibility to take care of your family to the extent that you can. It is your responsibility to find information that you believe to have a high degree of veracity. So rather than relying on the government, rather than relying on corporations and institutions, rely on yourself and be honest with yourself as opposed to responding to the information that conjures up the strongest emotional response. Try and find, and I fall prey to this as well. I'm not some sort of unemotional alien, but it's- You're just Australian. Yeah, I'm just Australian. Don't get me started on the Australian. I'm both now, mate, I'm both. But you know, my brother and I have been throwing around the idea of building our own city, finding somewhere in Arizona where they'll give us an, an area of land where we will be able to make our own laws and make our own rules adhering to the constitution and so forth. I've been thinking about the institutions, the gov- because I think there is a role for government. Of course, of course there's a role for government. But I'm thinking that below each of the departments of the government, their tagline is, don't trust us. I think it's very, very important that the populace does not blindly trust people in power, because these people are being given the responsibility of trillions and trillions of dollars. Your money, your dollars. And are these people doing with it the best that could be done? I would say not even close.
1: Well, did you ever look in the Peter Thiel, the floating city? Yeah.
0: Peter Thiel conceptually, I've followed for quite some time. I haven't actually seen the floating city. It's a good idea. There are some people who have gone into international waters and built their own little mini cities, you could say, or a couple of houses or whatever. But obviously, international waters isn't exactly the safest place. But you know, the United States was. If you just spend some time today reading through the Constitution, what is the number one thing that the Constitution warns against? Itself, government because they're fleeing tyrannical government. Keep government small. It is not the role of government to do this. The Bill of Rights was contended, for example, because the Bill of Rights kind of opens up the government's ability to redefine what its responsibilities are there's a great short story with davy crockett where he goes out and he interviews a couple of his constituents and the constituent says i'm not voting for you and davy crockett says why the constituent says well you gave twenty thousand dollars in charity to women and children whose houses burned down and davy crockett says well uh, you'd be out of your mind if you wouldn't assist someone like that and he said it is not the role of government. I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree, but it is an interesting perspective for sure. It is not the role of government to give out charity, it is the role of private citizens to give out charity. And to get this perspective, you've got to jump to the highest level and see what has caused the most damage to humanity over time. And it has been government that has outgrown itself, that has become tyrannical and overreached its former boundaries.
1: I thought about it, like just as you're talking about full circle, the government's trying to do right things or people trying to do right things. But just because you're trying to do the right things, if it's not working, then it's not good. Right. And that's the whole idea is that you're not supposed to do that. It's kind of like subsidies and farming. See how it came full circle. Right. Like the whole idea is like we want to help these farmers, but you're really not. And then you were saying people might only want to pay 30 percent more for a type of, you know, leafy plant. So they might not be interested in yours if it costs twice as much. But the only reason yours costs twice as much is if you're not getting the same subsidies, right? <laughs> so it's really the government's fault, right? Yeah. So it circles back, like, I think, I mean, you understand that, but hopefully maybe we touch some people now who, you know, these are things you don't think about until you start getting into it. And then you start getting in the circle. You're like, okay, like now I'm trying to understand how this all works. We're here to learn about business and stuff, but this actually is business and it kind of helps yeah. you full circle. You've always got to be open your mind and thinking yes. like why things are the way
0: they are. Yes. I think government, I believe personally that government is a requirement in civilization. I don't think anarchism works. But on the other extreme, I don't think that, you know, full centralization of the means of production to the government is a good idea. The history teaches that relatively well. This is the thing with, I think, government control, is that the person that institutes significant government control may have fantastic intentions and may be a great person and may actually use that for good. But dictator number two, three, four, and five, how do you know that they're going to have the same wishes? We see this over and over and over again. So practically, I think we've seen capitalism do the greatest good to humanity over the last 200 years. A huge amount of damage, environmental, humanitarian, all kinds of things. But at the same time, human beings in and of themselves are a messy organism. Then you put 8 billion of them together on a planet that's rotating around a big gas giant It is just incredible that we are where we are. And let's focus on making the world a better place to live for humans, animals, and the environment in general.
1: So you're saying the earth is not the center of the universe?
0: I couldn't tell you, mate. When I jumped up high in the plane, it looks pretty flat to me.
1: Oh, so you're a flat earther now.
0: Of course, mate. Of
1: course. <laughs> Thanks for taking the opportunity to, you know, hit on all these topics. Because again, I think I just think it helps everyone open their mind. would love to follow up with you in the future, maybe doing like a special Patreon episode to maybe hear more about your story. And maybe we can hear more about the timeline and then actually hear further down how things are going.
0: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to chat. I'm glad we went down the rabbit holes that we went down because I think these are the most important things to be discussing, including, of course, the business that we've built. but the characteristics of the United States and the world right now that I think we can help improve. So thank you for the opportunity, mate, and uh, look forward to doing this again. And so if someone wanted to
1: say thank you for doing the actual interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you?
0: Oh, sure, sure. Going to www.1.1.com. That's spelled out, O-N-E-P-O-I-N-T-O-N-E.com. That's the website. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. I hope you follow the journey because I think something quite disruptive is coming through the pipeline.
1: Awesome. Well, again, thanks for your time and look forward to diving in a follow-up episode or maybe dive into the hardest things that you've gone through. And again, chronologically understanding how you built this business and thought about it. So thanks again for coming on. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, man. Cheers. awesome. Flash forward to 2009 and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro. And I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know he says i impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in cozumel on new year's eve in 1998 and i immediately called bullshit because i remember that night vividly and there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates so i have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing and the night before i have to testify
1: so if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview Well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club. Or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club.
0: Join the club.